it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Tuesday, September 22nd, 2009. As promised, we'll get to some of the stories that I mentioned yesterday that we didn't have time to get to. And today's program will be a, just a little bit different. Similar but different. Two days in a row, we're not going to do a, a real sermon review per se. More details in a minute. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And uh, <clears throat> today's program is, uh, well, it's a little bit different, but it's really the same. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Well, we're not doing a sermon review per se. Yesterday we did a, a, a review of a lecture given by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Today we're going to be uh, reviewing a uh, law gospel presentation uh, developed by the Way of the Master guys, uh, Ray Comfort and uh, Kirk Cameron. Uh, this is, It's something called Hell's Best Kept Secret. We're going to be reviewing the audio from that. And uh, what I find encouraging is that, uh, again, law and gospel are not Lutheran categories. Yes, the Lutherans <clears throat> think they own it, but they don't. It's a Christian category, and I'm a Lutheran. It's a, These are Christian categories, and I'm very excited to see how people are... Um, it, it, there's a renewed uh, it, it, emphasis on correct distinction of law and gospel. And so today, uh, our program today will build off of some of the stuff that we uh, we talked about in yesterday's program, especially Dr. Rosenblatt's lecture on the proper distinction between law and gospel. So here's what we got lined up <clears throat> for today's program. I got a couple of emails that I'm going to get to, and then in response to one of the emails, we're going to be talking about uh, just the biblical, de- well, the, the definition, what is the kingdom of God? And uh, I, I'm going to give you uh, Luther's uh, answer to that, because I think his, his answer is absolutely correct. And then uh, we're going to use that to springboard into... Uh, Al Mohler has a new uh, has a piece out there. It's probably about a week old, and the nice thing is is that he actually uh, recorded himself reading this particular piece. It's called uh, "Why Moralism Is Not the Gospel and Why So Many Christians Think It Is," and uh, we'll we'll talk about how that pertains to both uh, pietistic conservative moralism as well as leftist social gospel moralism. Really, that's what it is. Uh, the emergent church, uh, which is uh, liberalism 2.0, is a form of moralism. Believe it or not, it's true. We'll talk about that. And then, as promised, uh, two stories we didn't get to yesterday. One is a Chinese megachurch has been demolished, and its congregants have been badly beaten. We'll have details on that. We, One of the things we do here is we follow uh, stories regarding persecution within the Christian church. And then uh, <clears throat> we've got news that... Uh, Rick Warren has written a follow-up to The Purpose Driven Life, and it's going to hit shelves in November. So it's going to be, you know, the Category 5, 4 or 5 uh, heresy uh, there. Because why Why do I say that ahead of time? Because Rick Warren could – he's not – he's so artful now at twisting God's word. I don't think he knows how to do correct exegesis anymore. So I don't have a lot of uh, hope that this is uh, going to turn out to be – 
uh, a correct biblical exposition of uh, the Lord's Prayer, which I think is the, the focus of this particular book. I've got a quick quote from uh, Spurgeon regarding how doubt is a deadly poison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, what do they say? There's nothing new under the sun. Well, uh, the emergence and their embracing of doubt and calling that being humble – well, they, they, there were people who were making that same stupid claim over 100 years ago, and Spurgeon wrote about it. We'll listen to him. And then, like I said, uh, uh, hour number two, when we or, or whenever we get to our sermon review section of Fighting for the Faith, we're actually going to be listening to uh, the audio from a video that is available on the, on the Internet. If you were to Google it and type in uh, Ray Comfort Hell's Best Camp Secret, you can find the uh, this video online. And uh, again, it's building off of uh, what we talked about yesterday regarding law and gospel. And plus, I got an email from somebody who said that uh, they had benefited from this particular video. And funny enough, it's been on my uh, list of uh, things to review for a little bit of time now. And so, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it along with some other things. I've got to catch up on some other uh, sermon reviews. But anyway. That being said, we're going to dive into our program proper, and uh, with the change in seasons, you know. By the way, it, it's it's officially fall here in uh, Indiana, and uh, temperatures are a little bit cooler. Although we've had some rain as a result of it, it kind of feels like somebody's armpit outside. But um, I'm sorry if that's uh, grossing you out. And I understand that Southern California is still having temperatures in the 90s. So depending on where you are right now, because this is this. Nothing is clear during transitional periods from uh, summer into fall. And then for those of you in the summer, southern hemisphere who listen and tune into Fighting for the Faith, I understand you're going from winter, uh, uh, basically from winter into spring. I mean, so you might have some warm temperatures down there, you know, that are kicking in as uh, as winter is giving way to uh, to warmer temperatures. So that being the case, there is absolutely no official ruling now. Uh, regardless of where you are on the planet, regarding uh, wearing fuzzy bunny slippers while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Um, It's clearly your own discretion, and it just depends on uh, on the temperature in your area. However, we strongly advise that uh, while wearing fuzzy bunny slippers that you not do so in hot weather uh, because it does detract from the overall experience of listening to Fighting for the Faith. Just something that we've, uh, this, the, the, the Fighting for the Faith Science Institute and department has actually done some studies on this and found that it does significantly distract and detract from the, the overall positive experience that you would have normally listening to Fighting for the Faith if your feet are sweating inside of a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers. Just want to let you know. All right. <clears throat> That being said, uh, got an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and he's uh, chiming in regarding um, girly praise songs. <clears throat> Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, listening to uh, Matt Redman's confessions on your program set me thinking. While I, while I am a minister of a church that uses the great tradition of English hymnology, uh, Pastor Charmley, I, be careful there, though. You don't. You you want to make sure that you don't sing those hymns in such a manner that they could be heard outside by Muslim women passing uh, in front of your your congregation. Otherwise, you could be arrested. Uh, something of a joke, but not really. Uh, he says, "I was once a university student." <laughs> you know, 
Uh, yeah, I was too, a long time ago in a galaxy far away. Anyway, he says, I started at university 11 years ago and finished nine years ago. And uh, UCCF, the Christian uh, Union Movement, is pretty full of students who like praise songs. Thus, I have some experience with them, and I can't sing them these days, though it would be wrong in all sorts of uh uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, Redmond points out a problem with the praise song genre, namely that its language is frankly unsuitable. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> because we're talking about, yeah, I mean, the, the, the language of many of these girly praise songs makes it sound like we're about ready to French kiss Jesus. And as a guy, that makes me completely uncomfortable. He says, uh, why? He says, why? It all began with a rejection of the existing conventional vocabulary of English worship. This vocabulary was drawn from the King James Bible. Now, I, I don't know if you're a King James Bible only guy. I just don't think so. But uh, we have talked about the authorized uh, translation. And he says, and it was felt by a significant number of young Christians that it had become artificial and was no longer the vocabulary of, of the majority of people. This is to miss the fact that the King James Bible is not written in colloquial English, but that it's uh, but that's another issue. While in some respects they had a point. For example, why should we use language in writing hymns that we don't use in everyday speech, such as the and the archaic verb ending such as est? Uh, they overreacted and threw out the forms of hymns as well. This was compounded by the fact that instead of creating a new vocabulary of worship, they borrowed an existing vocabulary largely from the secular love songs and romantic ballads of the day. <laughs> You're right. He's absolutely true. In part, this was an expression of a mysticism that seeks a direct experience of union with Christ and sees that, sees that union in terms of the marriage of the individual believer to him. Yep. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Ironically, whilst the original criticism of the conventional vocabulary of worship was that it was a sort of shop language that was in, in, intelligible to those outside of the church and therefore put them off, uh, this semi-erotic mystical language is even more off-putting. <laughs> Yes, that's true. Thankfully, uh, there are uh, there are those today writing hymns that use contemporary language in the same way that contemporary Bible translations do to express the great truths of the faith. Stuart Townsend is one, and among older men are uh, W. Vernon Hyam and Alan C. Clifford. In, in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley, and his uh, he always uh, signs off his emails with that great. Quote from John Newton, I know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Thank you for that uh, for that uh, historical point there, uh, Pastor Charmley. And I agree with you. I think that I think you've uh, put your finger directly on exactly what the problem is, is that they've exchanged one vo set of vocabulary for a different set of vocabulary. And the vocabulary they've picked up on is... Um, the uh, is the romantic love song vocabulary and by the way i i'm i'm not at all comfortable with this erotic mysticism i you know teresa of avila is just not my best friend is probably the best way of putting it and um that being the case you know i i i look forward to a resurgence of 
good hymns uh, written in language that doesn't adopt the uh, semi-erotic mysticism of current uh, completely vapid uh, evangelicalism in their so-called praise songs. All right. Well, let's see here. Uh, another email from Randy. I answered one of Randy's emails yesterday. I'm gonna. I don't know where Randy is from. But uh, Randy sure wants me to answer, answer a lot of questions as it pertains to Moltmann and the, uh, the emergent church movement. He, uh, he says, uh, Chris, I, I heard it said on your radio show the other night that the uh, emergent crowd at the Moltmann conference mentioned living in the kingdom of God on numerous occasions. Actually, that's not exactly how they put it. Uh, the phrase that they basically, uh, they, they, that I heard over and over again was basically participating in the kingdom of God or finding where God is at work and uh, participating in it. Uh, the implication being uh, the, how they're defining the kingdom of God pretty much is based on social justice. And so according to the emergent crowd, where they can know that the kingdom of God is, 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 um, is at work, or you can see the kingdom of God visibly, apparently, if you see uh, a poor person being given a sandwich, um, a naked person being clothed, and um, and uh, and homosexuals uh, being given their uh, equal rights and uh, social justice. Uh, the problem with that is uh, that that is not how the Bible defines the kingdom of God. Now, it is true that one of the fruits of the kingdom of God and we'll, t- we'll define the kingdom of God here shortly. One of the fruits of the kingdom of God is that God's sheep, um, th- th- those would be people who have been regenerated, people who've repented of their sins and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and salvation. Uh, one of the fruits of repentance is feeding the poor, clothing the naked, visiting prisoners in prison, things of that nature. Those are absolutely all signs of uh, somebody who has the fruit of repentance. However, that is not the definitive definition of the kingdom of God. And here's the deal. There's false fruit and there's true fruit. Let me give you an example. Um, I know this is going to be off-putting for some people. I apologize ahead of time, but I really am not sorry. I apologize that you are going to be off-put by what I'm going to say. But um, when we think about uh, the kingdom of God, we can think of, you know, Gandhi does not qualify. Okay, Gandhi is, was not a member of the kingdom of God, and what he did was not the kingdom of God in action. Uh, Gandhi led a political revolt against a, an oppressive imperial regime in, there in uh, in India, and he did it peacefully, um, and, claim, and even gives credit to learning his uh, his peaceful way of doing things to the teachings of Jesus Christ. However, that was not the kingdom of God at work. Okay. Um, when, you know, and for example, if, if you have, uh, also in India, you have Mother Teresa, who, you know, died a few years ago, but she died in, not in faith, but in complete doubt. And so here's the deal. Uh, Mother Teresa, she was trying to earn her salvation. She was caught up in a religion of works which is what Catholicism is. Therefore, when we su- we see what she did, as morally outstanding as it is, and it, it was morally outstanding, it isn't necessarily, uh, uh, it wasn't necessarily fruit of repentance, and it ne- isn't necessarily um, the kingdom of God in action. One of the pillars of Islam, one of the pillars of Islam is 
giving alms to the poor. Muslims give alms to the poor and they and they help the poor out. However, that is not an expression of the kingdom of God. Now, what do all three of these examples have in common? A, a denial in salvation by grace through faith alone by what Christ has done for us on the cross. That being the case, uh, when the emergents talk about the kingdom of God, they've redefined the term in such a way that it's not dealing with what it is biblically. Uh, they've redefined the kingdom of God as where you see social justice uh, taking place in the world. And the reason why they say that is because by you jumping in and helping and you know, making the kingdom of God happen like that, you become a co-recreator with God as he's trying to bring about uh, the, you know, this... Uh, this new, you know, the kingdom of God here on earth in a very visible way. But it's not, you know, <laughs> we talked about that eschatology yesterday. But let me give you uh, an, uh, the answer that Luther gives from both his small catechism and his large catechism. And I think this is the biblical definition. When we pray in um, the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So one of the petitions of the uh, of the Lord's Prayer, third, I think, is uh, your kingdom come. Luther, in his small catechism, asks the question, what is this? When we, when we pray, may your kingdom come, what is this? The answer is, in, in fact, God's kingdom comes on its own without our prayer, but we ask in this prayer that it may also come to us. So how does God's kingdom come about? Answer, Whenever our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit so that through His grace we believe in His Word and live godly lives here in time and, and thereafter in eternity. That's the small catechism's answer to it. And let me give you the large catechism's answer. We read uh, from Martin Luther's large catechism uh, regarding the third petition, May Your Kingdom Come. In the first petition, we prayed about God's name and honor that would uh, prevent the world from using his glory and his name to dress up its lies and wickedness, but would instead keep his name sacred and holy in both teaching and life so that he may be praised and exalted in us. In the same way, in this petition, we ask that his kingdom may come. Just as God's name is holy in itself, and yet we pray that it may be holy among us, so also his kingdom comes of itself without our prayer, and yet we pray that it may come to us. That is, that it may prevail among us and with us, so that we may be a part of those among whom his name is hallowed or made holy and his kingdom flourishes. So what is the kingdom of God? The answer is simple. Simply that we heard above in the creed, namely, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, into the world to redeem and deliver us from the power of the devil to bring us to himself and to rule us as a king of righteousness, life and salvation against sin, death and an evil conscience. To this end, he also gave his Holy Spirit to deliver us, uh, to, deliver, to deliver this to us through his holy word and to enlighten and strengthen us in faith by his power. So here we, we ask here at the outset that this may be realized in us and that his name may be praised through God's holy word in Christian living. This is uh, this we ask both in order that we who have accepted it may remain faithful and grow daily in it, and also in order that it may find approval and gain followers among other people and advance with power throughout the world. 
In this way, many, led by the Holy Spirit, may come into the kingdom of grace and become partakers of redemption so that we may all remain together eternally in this kingdom that has now begun. So, um, in short here, the kingdom of God is any place where Jesus Christ is king. And where Jesus Christ is king is among those who have repented of their sins and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And this is not a work of themselves, but it's the work of the, work of the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of God is a kingdom of the repentant is of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, as well as holy and Christian living for where uh, Jesus Christ is King. There are, there is Christian good works that follow. They have to follow because we've been, we, there's a, Christians have a new nature. So the kingdom of God is not not where we see social justice occurring per se. No, if that social justice is occurring without Christ being king, without repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and without good works that, that flow from faith in Christ, that social justice is devoid of the kingdom of God. It is not connected to the kingdom of God at all. Um, for, cause it is absolutely possible for you to give a sandwich to a poor kid, uh, without trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins or for that good work to be prompted by, uh, the Holy Spirit working in your life and true love and, and, uh, and for God and neighbor that comes about as a result of regeneration by faith. So that's the answer to your question. And what's missing from the emergent church crowd, they think the kingdom of God is is purely uh, some kind of uh, uh, moralistic exercise. It's all moralism. It's it's social justice moralism, and uh, <clears throat> and you know and therefore the kingdom of God can be in any religion as long as social justice is taking place. And uh, that is not the kingdom of God. If there's no repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no faith in Christ, and no good works that are a result or the fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, those people are not, that's not the kingdom of God because those people, Jesus Christ, is not their king. Only among those who've been regenerated, only among those who repent and trust in Christ is Jesus king. Only those who've had their sins convicted by the Holy Spirit, the sin of unbelief and, and rebellion against God, convicted by the Holy Spirit, that leads then to repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's where the kingdom of God is. And here's the deal. Um, it, in, a, in, a lo- in a very real sense, the kingdom of God pretty much on a day-to-day basis is invisible to most people. Um, because Christians, as well as unbelievers, are capable of giving alms and visiting prisoners and, and feeding the poor and things like that. And so when a Christian does these good works, that we can say, yes, that we can see the kingdom of God at work. But again, what's the key? That's somebody who's trusted in Christ and repented of their sins and uh, believes that God is going to, uh, that Christ has died on the cross for their sins and that, that it's all by grace through faith. Uh, somebody who is not a Christian can also give a sandwich to the poor, and that is not the working of the kingdom of, of God. That's not We don't see the kingdom of God working there. That's just, not, for lack of a better way of putting it, bad fruit from a bad tree, even though it might be morally upstanding in, in our society. But it's not prompted from or have, have its root in faith. Instead, uh, it, many times it's it might people give to the poor to uh, make their conscience feel better. 
You know, I oh, you know, I just feel terrible every time I drive by that person standing over there by the freeway exit, you know, and you know, he, you know, he really looks like he's in bad shape, but you know, I never give him anything. So I'm going to go ahead and give him cuz that'll make me feel better. Sorry. Yes, a poor person might be uh, given some money or a, a meal, but that's not the kingdom of God at work. And so uh and you know, that's the problem with literally the you know the moralistic liberalism that's coming out of the emergent church now we're going to take our uh, first break just a tad early here and when we come back we're going to listen to al moeller uh talking about this i I want to go into the al moeller segment here why moralism is not the gospel and why so many christians think that it is i want to be able to play that uh you know at least without a commercial break in the middle of it and uh, it it again plays into this whole idea what the kingdom of god is and uh, and is further uh, answer to Randy's uh, question regarding the kingdom of God. All right. Um, if you would like to email me regarding anything we've talked about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith or any uh, previous editions, you can do so. Uh, you can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can look me up on Facebook. My name is Chris Roseborough, or you can follow me on Twitter and Receive my subversive microblogging battle tweets. Um, yeah, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. You, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. 
I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Uh, uh, well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We're back. You are listening now, uh, <clears throat> Fighting for the Faith. I forgot my, the name of my own program. Oh, man, more creeping decrepitude, I tell you. Although I'm very happy to announce that I have officially lost five pounds. Yeah, it's true. If you follow me on Facebook, then you know that uh, <clears throat> I confess that... Uh, uh, the the television show The Biggest Loser has inspired me to uh, get serious about my weight loss, and uh, you know, for years I've been complaining about being overweight, and just you know, slowly but surely I keep adding, adding, and adding, and adding weight, 
And uh, now I know there's some controversy regarding the uh, the program, The Biggest Loser. You know, there's some people out there who just who think it's just absolutely reprehensible that uh, um, that Jillian uh, chick and that and that other guy, uh, Bob, is that his name? The two trainers, uh, they uh, that they're screaming and yelling and cussing at these morbidly obese people. Uh, it, it it looks <laughs> it really does kind of look like some kind of a torture session poor guy you know they, they, these are people who are competing for a quarter of a million dollars uh you know by being the quote biggest loser and uh i got to tell you though you know the 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 people who are um competing on the program really see it as a second chance and you know it, it it's touching for me yeah believe it or not i have a heart um, <laughs> just don't, don't be telling anybody I have a heart. And somebody sent me a Twitter tweet and said that, oh, Chris is just a big teddy bear. Now, don't be saying that. It's, it'll completely mess up the, the image I'm trying to project of myself. But yeah, but anyway, you know, it, it kind of breaks my heart watching these people, you know, who, you know, are struggling with, uh, with obesity and, you know, they really see they're going onto that program and, and competing in that competition as a second chance for a new life. Anyway, that all being said, I don't have a problem when a, a television show does something like that and talks about it. But, you know, but it, what really bugs me is is that when Christianity sits there and goes, oh, that's the Christian gospel. No, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't. So anyway, I, I've gotten serious about my weight loss, and uh, I'm using an application on my iPhone that, uh, I kid you not, I have to count every single calorie uh, that I ingest, and on top of it, I get to program into my uh, this little application all of the uh, exercise that I do and how many uh, you know estimated calories I've burned. And the whole goal is to uh, lose two pounds a week. And uh, whoops, I lost five. So I'm very happy about this, and I'm going to continue uh, continue on this. And the one thing I've noticed is it, in exercise, really getting serious about the exercise thing, is. Um, even though uh, the first the first few days of it were just absolutely brutal, once you got past the point where you couldn't walk or move, and it looked like you had um, you know, basically were saddle sore because your uh, muscles were killing constantly, you get past that, you actually feel really good. I have a lot of energy, and it, um, it's helped me, for the most part, to focus mentally and to focus on what I'm doing with my job. But um, so. I'm, I, I, we'll see. Since I've confessed this now on the radio, I, I guess I, I, y'all are going to hold me accountable and want to know how I'm doing. Well, I'll keep you posted because, uh, you know, again, I'm pretty excited by what's going on. And uh, I'm, I'm not starving either. Uh, when, you know, I have a, a daily allotment of calories that I'm allowed to have. And if I want more, then I have to exercise. And so, well, you know, I want more. <laughs> so I'm exercising. Anyway, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. I know you hear me pitching for, uh, in, you know, begging, pleading, you know, whatever, you I mean, fill in the blank, whatever you think this is, uh, for money on a regular basis. But the reality is, is that we cannot continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you without your financial support. And uh, so uh, we step out in faith, uh, believing that uh, we're offering you a service uh, in producing Fighting for the Faith and, and helping you to become more discerning and to uh, look critically at what's happening out there in today's uh, Christian world uh, by providing the sermon reviews and constantly reminding you of Christ's death on the cross for you. Even though you've been, you may have been a Christian for many, many years, you still need to hear the gospel. And so 
um, it, it, this program. We, we provide you a service by producing it. And in, t- in return, we ask that you partner with us and help us out financially, not just help us out because uh, if we ever get to the point where we're, um, you know, we can't pay our bills, then fighting for the faith and maybe even by a Christian go away. So uh, we don't want that to happen. But uh, we're not in that that kind of a predicament right now. But I need to remind you all that your financial support is vital for us to continue to operate. So you can support us a couple of ways. You can, number one, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you're there, uh, right there on the homepage, just look for one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Okay, They're they're very visible right there on the homepage. Click on one of them. It'll take you to a, a place where you can securely online uh, send in your contribution to Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, and and underwrite what we're doing. Or you can do it uh, the traditional way. You can write a check. I, there's people who still do that, and we have no problem with it. You can write a check. You can make your uh, check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. 46- Zero three eight. You know, I got off the phone with, uh, just before I went on the air. I got off the phone with Thomas Nelson Publishers, and I'm really excited about the book that we're going to be offering uh, in the in the month of October. And this is not a brand new book. This is this book has been out for a little while. Hang on, let me look at my copy of it. Yikes, 1994. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad that we can still get copies of it. They kind of said, "Well, um, it's, we're glad that we have some in stock." <laughs> The name of the book is uh, A Skeleton in God's Closet, and it's written by Paul L. Meyer. And uh, this is uh, it's a theological uh, uh, novel. It's it's theological fiction, and and it it basically uh, takes on the question: What if somebody uh, dug up the bones of Jesus Christ, and for all intents and purposes, I mean, you know, it was a rock solid clad case. I mean, unmistakably, the bones of Jesus Christ. What uh, what would the impact have on the world? And so, uh, it's a, it's a kind of an archaeological nerdy story, and there's a nice little romantic subplot to it. And uh, again, this is just a fantastic piece of fiction. And I I remember reading this when it first came out back in 1994. So you know what? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just glad that it's still in print. Let just let me put it that way. So uh, we're going to be making this available for the um, uh, the month of October, and we're just about out of our bombed away books. So, um, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna make this available. Uh, to keep. Uh, uh, I'm going to be doing a commercial spot for it very shortly, so uh, keep an eye, an ear out for it because this is a definitely uh, this is not one of those kind of books where you know you read a page and you sit there and you go, oh man, I got my brain hurts and I got to think about it. This is more, uh, this is just good. This is good theology in the form of a novel and a fantastic read and re- highly recommend it. So yeah, just kind of prepping you for it now. We'll, we'll, we're going to start uh, taking orders for it in the next uh, few days. So I uh, want to let you know about that. That uh, Walter, uh, but not Walter, Paul L. Myers, a skeleton in God's closet. So, um, if you haven't read it, it's just great. All right, moving along here, um, as promised, it, it kind of in a follow-up to, to uh, Randy's email regarding the kingdom of God. Al Moeller uh, of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is down in Louisville, which is really only a couple of hours away from me, which is weird. Um, he uh, has a he has a new well not it's not brand spanking new but a, a new op-ed piece uh, entitled uh, um, 
why moralism is not the gospel and why so many Christians think it is. This is uh, just a fantastic piece, and it's a good follow-up in talking about moralism. One of the things I like about this particular piece, he talks about moralism on both the right, uh, the conservative spectrum, and the liberal spectrum. And the emergent church and and, uh, and uh, modernist liberalism really is a form of moralism. Uh, because it's not about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about moral improvement. It's not about personal moral improvement, but it's it's about moral improvement in the sense of you getting involved in social justice. And uh, Moeller talks about that really well in his piece. So, uh, And the nice thing is, is he recorded him reading. He recorded himself reading this. And so here's uh, Al Moeller on why moralism is not the gospel and what so many Christians think that it is. Why moralism is not the gospel and why so many Christians think it is. One of the most amazing statements by the Apostle Paul is his indictment of the Galatian Christians for abandoning the gospel. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, Paul declared. As he stated so emphatically, the Galatians had failed in the crucial test of discerning the authentic gospel from its counterfeits. His words could not be more clear. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Galatians 1, 6-7 This warning from the Apostle Paul, expressed in the language of the Apostle's shock and grief, is addressed not only to the church in Galatia, but to every congregation in every age. In our own day and our own churches, we desperately need to hear and to heed this warning. In our own time, we face false gospels no less subversive and seductive than those encountered and embraced by the Galatians. Uh, Muller is absolutely right here that uh, we are facing gospels that are just as subversive. I mean, he's spot on here, and there's all kinds of false gospels running around the landscape, and uh, he's, he's absolutely dead on on this assessment. In our own context, one of the most seductive false gospels is moralism. This false gospel can take many forms and can emerge from any number of political and cultural impulses. Nevertheless, the basic structure of moralism comes down to this, the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Sadly, this false gospel is particularly attractive to those who believe themselves to be evangelicals motivated by a biblical impulse. Far too many believers and their churches succumb to the logic of moralism and reduce the gospel to a message of moral improvement. In other words, we communicate to lost persons the message that what God desires for them and demands of them is to get their lives straight. In one sense, we are born to be moralists. Created in God's image, we've been given the moral capacity of conscience. From our earliest days, our conscience cries out to us the knowledge of our guilt, shortcomings, and misbehaviors. In other words, our conscience communicates our sinfulness. Add to this the fact that the process of parenting and child-rearing tends to inculcate moralism from our earliest years. Very quickly we learn that our parents are concerned with our behavior. Well-behaved children are rewarded with parental approval, while misbehavior brings parental sanction. This message is reinforced by other authorities in young lives and pervades the culture at large. Writing about his own childhood in rural Georgia, The novelist Farrell Sams described the deeply ingrained tradition of being raised right. As he explained, 
The child who is raised right pleases his parents and other adults by adhering to moral conventions and social etiquette. A young person who is raised right emerges as an adult who obeys the laws, respects his neighbors, gives at least lip service to religious expectations, and stays away from scandal. The point is clear. This is what parents expect, the culture affirms, and many churches celebrate. But our communities are filled with people who have been raised right, but are headed for hell. Right, exactly. Which, and this is kind of the uh, the flip side of what I was saying earlier regarding the fact that uh, there's a lot. I mean, Muslims feed the poor, but that doesn't mean that what they're doing is connected to the kingdom of God because they do not. Uh, they haven't repented and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They believe in a false Jesus, and they are uh, caught up in a religion of works. Conversely, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, where you have conservatives who focus in on a, a moral improvement as it pertains to your life, there's many morally upstanding people who don't, uh, you know, who don't give in to particular, you know, cultural vices, and yet they don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They pay their taxes, they're decent husbands, they're decent wives, uh, and you know, they obey the speed laws, and uh, and and you know, they are, they aren't involved in some racketeering. Uh, activity or anything like that, and yet they're bound for hell, even though they're morally decent people. You see, because the gospel teaches us something different. It's not about, you're not saved by your moral improvement. The seduction of moralism is the essence of its power. We are so easily seduced into believing that we actually can gain all the approval we need by our behavior. Of course, in order to participate in this seduction, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. Most moralists would not claim to be without sin, but merely beyond scandal. That is considered sufficient. Moralists can be categorized as both liberal and conservative. In each this is an important point. Listen up. Case, a specific set of moral concerns frames the moral expectation. As a generalization, it is often true that liberals focus on a set of moral expectations related to social ethics, while conservatives tend to focus on personal ethics. The essence of moralism is apparent in both, the belief that we can achieve righteousness by means of proper behavior. Right. In the case of the conservative, personal ethics. Case of the liberal, social ethics, social justice, and things like that. Both of them are basically two sides of the same moralistic coin. The theological temptation of moralism is one many Christians and churches find difficult to resist. The danger is that the church will communicate by both direct and indirect means that what God expects of fallen humanity is moral improvement. In so doing, the church subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel to a fallen world. Christ's church has no option but to teach the Word of God, and the Bible faithfully reveals the law of God and a comprehensive moral code. Christians understand that God has revealed himself throughout creation in such a way that he has gifted all humanity with the restraining power of the law. Furthermore, he has spoken to us in his word and the gift of specific commands and comprehensive moral instruction. The faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ must contend for the righteousness of these commands and the grace given to us in the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. Now, keep something in mind. God's moral code. Uh, really summarized in the Ten Commandments, or even further boiled down into the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. 
that uh, that God's moral demands upon our life cover the spectrum from personal moral, uh, uh, you know, personal morals all the way to social morals. And one of the real, uh, one of the, I think one of the reasons why the church is fractured in the way that it is, okay, take take out of the equation for the moment uh, the fact that uh, the liberals deny the sufficiency of God's word, uh, the inerrancy of God's word, and the fact that it's, it is authoritative and norming for the Christian um one of the one of the things that the, the 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 reasons why there is a fracture is is that it seems like the conservatives only focus on the one and the liberals only focus on the other. But when you correctly teach both law and gospel, it's going to point out your sins as collectively as well as individually, so that we understand that as Christians, you know the the decisions that are happening in our country that collectively there's guilt that is upon us as well as individually. So. Um, just something I wanted to point out. We also have a responsibility to bear witness of this knowledge of good and evil to our neighbors. The restraining power of the law is essential to human community and to civilization. Just as parents rightly teach their children to obey moral instruction, the church also bears responsibility to teach its own the moral commands of God and bear witness to the larger society of what God has declared to be right and good for his human creatures. But these impulses right and necessary as they are, are not the gospel. Indeed. Absolutely right. That's right. These moral impulses are not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins, that we are saved by grace through faith alone without works. We're, our salvation has nothing to do with our works, but those who are saved do good works because they've been regenerated and they have a new nature uh, that's given to them as a result of Christ's regenerative work. Indeed, one of the most insidious false gospels is a moralism that promises the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to sinners if they will only behave and commit themselves to moral improvement. The moralist impulse in the church reduces the Bible to a code book for human behavior and substitutes moral instruction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yep, uh, that's exactly what uh, people like Rick Warren do, too. Uh, Rick Warren contends that the uh, the Bible is a guidebook for living. What does that reduce the Bible to? Uh, basically, moral codes. Far too many evangelical pulpits are given over to moralistic messages rather than the preaching of the gospel. The corrective to moralism comes directly from the Apostle Paul when he insists that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Salvation comes to those who are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, mm -hmm. since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Galatians 2.16. We sin against God and we mis misrepresent the gospel when we suggest to sinners that what God demands of them is moral improvement in accordance with the law. Moralism makes sense to sinners, for it is but an extension of what we've been taught from our earliest days. But moralism is not the gospel, and it will not save. The only gospel that saves is the gospel of Christ. As Paul reminded the Galatians, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4-5. We are justified by faith alone, saved by grace alone, and redeemed from our sin by Christ alone. 
Moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved. Yep, that's right. That's what moralism does. It produces sinners who are potentially more morally behaved, or in the case of liberals, more aware and participating in fighting social injustice. But they're sinners nonetheless, and they're not saved. The gospel of Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God. Amen. Yep. The church must never evade, accommodate, revise, or hide the law of God. Indeed, it is the law that shows us our sin and makes clear our inadequacy and our total lack of righteousness. Mm -hmm. The law cannot impart life, but as Paul insists, it has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Galatians 3.24. Right on. The deadly danger of moralism has been a constant temptation to the church and an ever-convenient substitute for the gospel. Clearly, millions of our neighbors believe that moralism is our message. Nothing less than the boldest preaching of the gospel will suffice to correct this impression and to lead sinners to salvation in right on this is so good in Christ. Hell will be highly populated with those who were raised right. The citizens of heaven will be those who by the sheer grace and mercy of God are there solely because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Moralism is not the gospel. I'm Albert Moeller. All right. Great, great piece by Al Mohler. Loved the proper use of law and gospel. He preaches the law lawfully. I mean, in that short little piece there, Abed, he, he absolutely nails it. And uh, just a fantastic piece. Fantastic. And uh, you can find that at almohler.com. Uh, and if you would like to uh, find that for yourself without me interrupting it. Um, all right, uh, moving along here, it's, uh, I've got some news stories that uh, I've been threatening to get to but uh, haven't done so. So uh, we'll have to play our vintage news music here. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Follow up to purpose-driven light to hit shelves in November. That's right, hide your children. Kind of on a side note, I've known for a little bit of time that uh, that Rick Warren was working on this uh, this sequel to the Purpose Driven Life, and uh, those of you who know Rick Warren recently, you know, I'd say within the last couple of months, he uh, began twittering. You know, he he began twittering. He he is now Rick Warren ha- is out there tweeting uh, away different things, and uh, I the, I kid you not, I began following him. I think day two that he began twittering. And uh, in less than a week's time, he blocked me. <laughs> it's true. You know what's funny is is that I mean you have to. I don't think I've blocked anybody yet uh, that follows me on Twitter, and I get shot at all the time you know, on Twitter. And uh, you know what 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 caused Rick Warren to block me on Twitter? Well, when he announced that he was writing this book, I sent out a challenge to him on Twitter. I said, Rick Warren, I challenge you. To not twist a single passage of scripture in your new book. And you know what he did? He blocked me. <laughs> it's true. So apparently uh, a little thin skin there. He doesn't want, you know, don't want to point out the fact that Rick Warren is a Bible twister. We've uh, covered that topic many a time here on Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, and of course, when his new book comes out, we'll have to talk about it. But uh, the, the story was written by Kevin Donovan in the Christian Post. And uh, it reads... Um, Mega church, uh, mega church pastor Rick Warren will be releasing the follow-up to his best-selling purpose-driven life in November through Christian publishing giant Zondervan, according to a recent announcement. 
The Hope You Need, which that's the name of the book, which Warren has been working on since July, will invite readers to plug into the unparalleled power that exists within the words of the best-known prayer on the planet, the Lord's Prayer, through which Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Plug into the unparalleled power? Oh, boy. Yeah, I can tell this is already going to be a problem. Uh, Quote, uh, with his classic approachability, passion, and candor, Warren provides helpful insight and much-needed inspiration in these tough times regarding uh, every area of life that God tells us to turn over to him, including fear, resentment, worry, guilt, and loneliness, Zonovan stated in their announcement. Oh, boy. Uh, Though Warren's original plan was to release the book next year on Easter Sunday, the 30th anniversary of his uh, Southern California megachurch, the increasingly influential evangelical leader noted that uh, many individuals, including his own congregation, are right now feeling the pinch of the recession and are in need of hope. Does anyone have a... Did you listen to that? Okay, so Rick Warren single-handedly is going to somehow uh, give people hope by releasing this book, you know, six months earlier than than expected. (sighs) Man, thank the Lord that we get these crumbs from heaven that fall from Rick Warren's table because apparently he and Jesus just hang out. I mean, if it wasn't for Rick Warren in this new book, uh, the the world could fall into complete hopelessness. My motivation as an author has always been the message, not the market, and I have been waiting for the right time until I had something to say that would speak to the personal and societal problems we all face, Warren explained. (sighs) Adding to Warren's comments, Zondervan CEO Mo Gherkins said, uh, gaining gaining insight and meaning to the way Jesus prayed to his father no doubt will inspire all of us. So we're, apparently we're not even capable of just opening up the Bible and reading the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we need Rick Warren to uh, give us the, the the hidden insights that we all missed and use that as a point, point that we can so that to inspire us. <sighs> Do I sound like I'm just jumbling my words? Well, yeah, I can't wait to get into this because it'll give me oh just just that much more job security because i guarantee you i can tell already that this is going to be a bible twister extraordinaire quote we are thrilled to partner once again with our longtime friend to bring this timeless and timely message to everyone uh, according to zondervan the hope you need will release simultaneously in english as well as spanish uh, worldwide on november 17th and the book draws its inspiration from an eight-part sermon series Warren taught on the Lord's Prayer at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest earlier this year. So there you have it, the hope you need. It's not in the Bible, it's in the book that uh, Rick Warren is going to be releasing shortly. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back real quick, we got uh, persecution news. Uh, Chinese megachurch demolished and congregants are badly beaten. We're going to read that story from uh, Ethan Cole from the Christian Post. And a quick uh, quick. Spurgeon quote that was posted on the Pyromaniacs uh, website uh, called Doubt is a Deadly Poison. And then our sermon review, it's not quite a sermon, but it's another good distinction, proper distinction between law and gospel. This time presented by Ray Comfort of the uh, 
of the Way of the Master gang, and uh, it's called Hell's Best Kept Secret, and we're going to be reviewing that today on uh, Fighting for the Faith in hour number two, so you definitely don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I'm generally a friendly guy there. Uh, my name is Chris Roseboro, or you can follow me on Twitter and uh, track my subversive microblogging battle tweets. Uh, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Number two of Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Hopefully my creeping decrepitude will not make an appearance in this hour. It's always funny when I go back to review the program. Uh, what could I have done differently here? What could I have done better there? <clears throat> to hear the um, the brain not working, you know, like the gears are slipping or something. It's like, you, you know, you ever been in a... In a car, like like one of those big old American gas guzzler cars, when the transmission is going out, it goes, you know, like, <laughs> I feel like the transmission's slipping on my brain sometimes. All right, okay, uh, as promised here, uh, gotten persecution news. This is an important story from uh, Ethan Cole, Christian Post reporter. Headline reads, Chinese megachurch uh, demolished congregants badly beaten. 
A megachurch in eastern China was recently demolished by reportedly 400 people in police suits, a human rights group reported on Tuesday. Before dawn last Sunday, the mob raided the Good News Cloth Shoes Factory, which also serves as the site for the Fushan Church. Men tore at the building's foundation with shovels as bulldozers worked to level other buildings on the site, according to China Aid Association. Meanwhile, dozens of church members sleeping at the construction site of the new church building were suddenly attacked with bricks and other objects. Several members were severely injured and were sent to the emergency room, and some members uh, were unconscious. Over 100 people were injured by the attack, according to the church's website. However, authorities told the local emergency room not to treat or to give blood transfusions for the injured church members. Two of the injured congregants had to be transferred with oxygen masks to another hospital. The power, water, and telephone lines to the Christian-run factory were also cut off. Guards also closely monitored the supply lines running to the factory. We are totally shocked to hear of this bloody crackdown against innocent Christian believers by the Fushan County officials said Bob Fu, president of China Aid. We urge the Chinese government to hold those abusive officials accountable and to take concrete actions to guarantee the Fushan, Fushan citizens' religious freedom. Members of the Fushan Church say they saw the government officials among the mob, including the secretary uh, Zhang Zhuang Town, uh, Gao Zhuangzhuang, and uh, vice county executive Don Newman. Boy, I'm messing those names up. Uh, uh, Giving uh, the command to destroy the church. Besides destroying buildings, the mob also smashed refrigerators, motorcycles, and stole the television and other appliances, according to CAA. Uh, Church uh, members reported that their money, cell phones, clothes, and factory business license were stolen. On Sunday, thousands of church members who arrived who later arrived for service, were said to be shocked to find the buildings completely destroyed. Photos of the church available on its website showed uh, showed the brick buildings lying in rubbles. Congregate, congregants described the scene as worse than the Wenchuan earthquake. Fushan uh, church members say that they are praying to God for justice and for those injured in the attack. Please pray fervently for the badly hurt brothers and sisters and the severely damaged house of the Lord in Fushan, uh, in Fushan Church. Uh, I read a note posted on the church's website. So uh, f- stop and uh, say a prayer for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, openly attacked by mobs in, uh, in uh, eastern China. All right, one more thing. Uh, Pyromaniacs uh, blog, uh, Phil Johnson, I think, is one of the contributors there. Fine, fine website. Uh, Phil works for... Uh, John MacArthur and the Pyromaniacs website is just visually it's uh, stunning the what they do with their Photoshop work there, but uh, they also have a uh, they have a weekly dose of Spurgeon and uh, this particular uh, dose of Spurgeon seems to <clears throat> do a fine job of smacking the uh, emergence and their dumb ideas upside their heads. Um, this is from Spurgeon and the the uh, the name of this post is Doubt is a Deadly Poison and uh, <clears throat> Spurgeon writes he says. Find, if you can, beloved, one occasion in which Jesus inculcated doubt or bade men dwell in uncertainty. <laughs> this is, <clears throat> you sure this wasn't just uh, attributed to Spurgeon and written yesterday? <clears throat> the apostles of unbelief are everywhere today, and they imagine that they are doing God a service by spreading what they call honest doubt. 
This is death to all joy, poison to all peace. The Savior did not so. He would have them take extraordinary measures to get rid of their doubt. O beloved, you that are troubled and vexed with thoughts and therefore get no comfort out of your religion because of your mistrust, your Lord would have you come very near to him and put his gospel to any test which will satisfy you. He cannot bear you to doubt. He appeals tenderly, saying, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? He would at this moment still encourage you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He would have you believe in the substantial reality of his religion and handle him and see, trust him largely, and simply as a child trusts its mother and knows no fear. <laughs> Fine words by Charles Spurgeon, and very timely to say the least. All right, it's uh, time for our sermon review today. Well, it's not really a sermon review. It's um, a, a video DVD review. Yeah. From the good, the bad, the ugly. Notice we're playing the ukulele version, which means that you're going to hear the gospel. This is from uh, Ray Comfort and the gang over at the uh, Way of the Master. You know, I guess it's no longer Way of the Master Radio. They, they now do Wretched Radio. Now, I'm not, that's not a, an aspersion against the the radio. That's what they call it. They call it <laughs> they call it Wretched Radio. And uh, Ray Comfort is a uh, Kiwi. He's a New, New Zealander who's uh, been transplanted to the Los Angeles area, and he does uh, basically street preaching. Fine job of it too. And this. Uh, the name of this, uh, the audio is taken from this video that was uh, made available on the internet called Hell's Best Kept Secret. <clears throat> and uh, the reason why we're doing two good things in a row is because this builds off of what we heard yesterday from Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on the proper distinction of long gospel. And th the thing I love about this presentation uh, by Ray Comfort is, is that he, again, you know, just like we heard Al Mohler, just like we heard Rod Rosenblatt, he gets the purpose of the law, and he uses the law lawfully. So, <clears throat> without any further ado, let's go ahead and kill the music. Yeah, thank you. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Hell's Best Kept Secret. Here is uh, Ray Comfort. In the late 70s, God very graciously opened an itinerant ministry to me. And as I began to travel, I found that I had access to church growth records and found in my horror that something like 80, even 90% of those making a decision for Christ were falling away from the faith. Got to stop there. Listen to what he just said. Okay, He was privy to uh, documentation that showed that 80 to 90% of people who made a public decision for Jesus Christ have fallen away from the faith. Yeah, I wonder what uh, Stephen Furtick and uh, Perry Noble would have to say about that, because they're following that same bankrupt methodology. But we continue. That is, modern evangelism with its methods was creating 80 to 90 of what we erroneously call backsliders with every hundred decisions for Christ. And this is normal, modern evangelistic results from local churches right up to large crusades. Let me make it more real for you. In 1991, a major denomination in the U.S., was able to obtain 294,000 decisions for Christ. 
That is in one year, 294,000 decisions. And yet it can only find 14,000 in fellowship. That is, it couldn't account for 280,000 of the decisions. And this is normal, modern evangelistic results, as I said, from local churches right up to large crusades and something I discovered way back in the late 70s. Got to point something out here. 294,000 decisions. Again, what is the Bible does not support decision evangelism at all. What does that tell you? These people are not converted. They're not regenerated. They've made a decision, but a decision for what? We continue. I began to make it a matter of urgent prayer and began to study the gospel proclamation of men like Spurgeon, Wesley, Moody, Whitfield, Luther, and others that God used down through the ages, and I found they used a principle which is almost entirely neglected by modern evangelism. I began teaching that principle and was eventually invited to base our ministry in Southern California specifically to bring the teaching to the church of the U.S. Now things were very quiet for the first three years until we received a call from Bill Goffert in Chicago. He'd been watching the teaching on video and he immediately flew me to San Jose in Northern California where I shared the teaching with a thousand pastors. Then he put the teaching on video and that year screened it to 30,000 pastors. The same year, David Wilkerson called from New York. He'd been listening to the teaching in his car, called me on his car phone and immediately flew me 3,000 miles from LA to New York to share the one-hour teaching with his church. He considered it to be that important. And recently I heard of a pastor who had listened to the one-hour audio tape 250 times. I'd be happy if you'd listen just once to this teaching which is called Hell's Best Kept Secret. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What is it that the Bible says is perfect and actually converts the soul? Why scripture makes it very clear. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now to illustrate the function of God's law, let's just look for a few moments at civil law. Imagine if I said, I've got some good news for you. This is great news. Someone just paid a $25,000 speeding fine on your behalf. You probably react by saying, what are you talking about? That's not good news. I don't have a $25,000 speeding fine. My good news wouldn't be good news to you. It would seem foolishness. But more than that, it would be offensive to you because I'm insinuating you've broken the law when you don't think you have. But if I was to put it this way, it may make more sense. On your way to work today, the law clocked you at going 55 miles an hour through an area set aside for a blind children's convention. There were 10 clear warning signs stating that 15 miles an hour was the maximum speed, but you went straight through at 55 miles an hour. What you did was extremely dangerous. There's a $25,000 fine. The law was about to take its course when someone you don't even know stepped in and paid the fine for you. You are very fortunate. Can you see that telling you precisely what you've done wrong first actually makes the good news make sense? If I don't bring clear instruction you've violated the law, then the good news will seem foolishness, it will seem offensive. But once you understand you've broken that law, then that good news becomes good news indeed. Now in the same way, if I approach an impenitent sinner, someone whose understanding is darkened and say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, it'll be foolishness to him and offensive to him. Foolishness because it won't make sense. The Bible says that. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
and offensive because I'm insinuating he's a sinner when he doesn't think he is. As far as he's concerned, there are plenty of people far worse than him. But if I take the time to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it may make more sense. If I open up the divine law, the Ten Commandments, and show him precisely what he's done wrong, that he has offended God by transgressing his law, then when he becomes, as James says, convinced of the law as a transgressor, then the good news of the fine being paid for will not be foolishness, it will not be offensive, it will be the power of God unto salvation. All right, this next segment is going to show, uh, you're listen to uh, how Ray Comfort does some open-air preaching. Folks, who of us doesn't repent of sin? You commit adultery, you feel guilty. You'll say, God, I'm sorry. That doesn't mean you're forgiven. Think of it like this. If you stand I think he might be a short guy. He's standing on a soapbox. He still looks short. Sorry. In front of a judge, there's a $50,000 fine against you. And a judge has anything to say. You say, Judge, I won't commit the crime again. I won't do it again. And I'm really sorry. He won't let you go just because you're sorry, just because you won't do it again. Of course you should be sorry. You've broken the law. And of course you shouldn't do it again. He will not let you go on the basis of being sorry or not doing it again. But if someone pays your fine, then the judge can let you go. Just Justice has been done. And God will not forgive you just because you're sorry. Of course you should be sorry if you commit adultery. If you watch filthy movies, your conscience will condemn you. If you lie or steal or lust, you know in your heart you're doing wrong. And of course you shouldn't do it again. And God will not forgive you just on the basis that you're repentant or that you're contrite. But if someone paid your fine, then God will forgive you on the basis that someone paid your fine. Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ paid the fine for the sins of the world. The Bible says He was bruised for our iniquities. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus Christ took the punishment. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a substitutionary death. He paid our fine, then He rose from the dead, a defeated death. And if you'll repent and trust in Him, God will forgive your sins and grant you everlasting life on the basis that Jesus Christ took your punishment, on the basis that He paid your fine. Let's now look to the Scriptures for some of the functions of God's law for humanity. Romans 3 verse 19 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So one of the functions of God's law is to stop the sinner's mouth and leave the whole world guilty before God. It's to stop a sinner justifying himself and saying, there's plenty of people worse than me, I'm not a bad person really. And the law is not just for the Jews, but the whole world. Next verse says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God's law tells us what sin is. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is transgression of the law. Then in Romans 7, verse 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. And then he said an amazing statement, No, I had not known sin but by the law. Paul said, I had no idea what sin was until the law told me. And Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Have you been stealing? Are you a thief? Are you a thief? 
Well, not in No! What sort of... Are you a white-collar criminal? You put on a white collar and steal from Yeah, I wouldn't be here now, probably. So you are a thief? Everyone has. I, yes. I'm not talking to everyone. I'm talking about you. Yeah. What are you? Who am I? What are you? A thief. Are you the caterpillar? You're a thief. Now, have you ever told a lie? No. Have I told... Yes. Once. Once. So you're a liar and a thief. <laughs> a lying thief. No wonder you feel guilty when you look at these guys like federal agents. <laughs> You see, your conscience accuses you. Conscience means with knowledge. Every time you've lied or stolen, you've known in your heart you've done wrong. Conscience. And God's going to judge you, friend. On the day of judgment, you stand before God. You say, I don't believe that. Don't stand on a freeway and don't believe in trucks. You'll get crushed. You're on a path of sin. The vehicle of eternal justice is hidden for you. And unless you repent, you're going to perish. You need to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure I need to repent. You're not sure? No. Let me help it's you. It's unclear. I am sure. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. What are you going to do on the day of judgment? God is not willing that you should perish. He wants you to come to repentance. Now, do you know why Jesus died on the cross? He died on the cross. Yeah, do you know why? Because no one took him down. No, do you know why? Seriously. For my sins. Yeah, that's right. He took the punishment for I your need to die for my sins. For your lie. He took the punishment so God doesn't have to judge you as a lying thief. You see, have you ever lusted after a woman? Maybe once. Just once? <laughs> Man, you surely are Maybe. a liar. <laughs> you know, just listening to that exchange, I mean, you are hearing the law being applied to people. He is proclaiming the law. He is not cutting off any of the hard edges, he's not trying to make it soft and fluffy. I mean, he is wielding the law in such a way that here is this uh, this unrepentant pagan who is being confronted point blank with his sins, but not just that, but also with the cross, with Christ crucified for our sins, law and gospel being used in an evangelistic sense. Fantastic. This is wonderful stuff. So now, by your own admission... You're a lying, thieving, adulterer heart. Man, you are going to go end up in hell. You've got to repent. I don't want you to end up in hell. You've got to repent for your faith in Jesus. What's that? He sounds like an imperfect human to me. He is. He's an imperfect human. That's what the Bible says. We're all imperfect. We have come short of the glory of God. That Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're not, so we need to be, we need to be made perfect. How do we do that? Through trusting in Jesus Christ. He will make you perfect. He'll make you holy, he'll make you just, and he'll make you good. You say, man, how can that be? Grace! Well, God's law is like a mirror. When we look into the perfect law of liberty, we should see we're all as an unclean thing, and all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And once we see ourselves in truth, we go from the mirror of the law to the water of the blood of Christ to wash. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. God's law doesn't help us. It just leaves us helpless. It doesn't justify us. It just leaves us guilty before the judgment bar of a holy God. And the tragedy of modern evangelism is that around the turn of the last century, when it forsook the law and its capacity to drive sinners to Christ, modern evangelism therefore had to find another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel. Okay, now listen carefully to what he has to say here. Listen carefully. Now, already in, in his presentation, there's some things theologically 
that I would disagree with or well, not, not necessarily disagree with. I would say it differently or tighten it down because his definitions are a little slippery. However, he's still working in block law and gospel correctly. Now listen to what he says uh, has happened as a result of evangelism no longer preaching the law to accuse sinners of their sin and drive them to their knees and show them their need for a savior. Listen to what they've replaced it with. And the issue that modern evangelism chose was the issue of life enhancement. The gospel degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. This is the purpose-driven life paradigm to a T. The seeker-driven movement preaching, all the, all the sermons that we review here in Fighting for the Faith, uh, from the seeker-driven guys. The seeker, understand, a seeker-driven church service is supposed to be an, an evangelistic service. And what is it? It's all just life enhancement. And it's not law and gospel done correctly. To illustrate the unscriptural nature of this very popular teaching, I'd like you to listen very carefully to this following anecdote, because the essence of what I'm saying pivots on this particular point. Two men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put it on as it would improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first as he can't see how wearing a parachute in a plane could possibly improve the flight. After a time, he decides to experiment and see if the claim is true. As he puts it on, he notices the weight of it upon his shoulders and he finds that he has difficulty in sitting upright. However, he consoles himself with the fact he was told the parachute would improve the flight, so he decides to give the thing a little time. As he waits, he notices that some of the other passengers are laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute in a plane. He begins to feel somewhat humiliated. As they begin to point and laugh at him, he can stand it no longer. He slinks in a seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it to the floor. As far as he's concerned, it'll be a long time before anyone gets one of those things on his back again. The second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he's told. He's told to put it on because at any moment he'd be jumping 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't notice the weight upon his shoulders, nor that he can't sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped without that parachute. The first man's motive for putting the parachute on was solely to improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the other passengers. He was disillusioned. As far as he's concerned, it'll be a long time before anyone gets one of those things on his back again. The second man put the parachute on solely to escape the jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him without it, he has a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart knowing that he's saved from sure death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude toward those who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. Now listen to what the modern gospel says. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ who will give you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. A uh, purpose, if you would. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. So the sinner responds, and in an experimental fashion, puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. And what does he get? The promise, temptation, tribulation, and persecution. The other passengers mock him. So what does he do? He takes off the Lord Jesus Christ. He's offended for the word's sake. He's disillusioned and somewhat embittered, and quite rightly so. He was promised peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness, and all he got were trials and humiliation. His latter end becomes worse than the first, another inoculated and bitter backslider. Instead of preaching that Jesus improves the flight, 
we should be warning sinners they're going to have to jump out of the plane. The disappointed a man wants to die, and after this the judgment. And when a sinner understands the horrific consequences of breaking God's law, then he will flee to the Savior solely to escape the wrath that's to come. And if we are true and faithful witnesses, that's what we'll be preaching, that there is wrath to come, that God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness. You see, the issue isn't one of happiness, but one of righteousness. It doesn't matter how happy a sinner is, how much he's enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, without the righteousness of Christ, he'll perish on the day of wrath. The Bible says, Riches profit not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation, but it's not legitimate to use these fruits as a draw card for salvation. If we continue, right, right. You don't use the fruits of a spi of the spirit as a draw card, as the uh, what's in it for me, the whiffums in the marketing term for salvation. Oh, this is good. Good point. To do so, sinners will respond with an impure motive, lacking repentance. Now, can you remember why the second passenger had joy and peace in his heart? It was because he knew the parachute was going to save him from sure death. And as a believer. I have, as the Apostle Paul says, joy and peace in believing because I know that the righteousness of Christ is going to deliver me from the wrath that's to come. Let's now take a close look at an incident on board the plane. We have a brand new stewardess. It's her first day. She's carrying a tray of boiling hot coffee. She wants to leave an impression on the passengers, and she certainly does. Because as she's walking down the aisle, she trips over someone's foot and slops that boiling hot coffee all over the lap of our second passenger. Now what's his reaction as that boiling liquid hits his tender flesh? Does he go, man that hurt, mm-hmm, he feels the pain. But then does he rip the parachute from his shoulders, throw it to the floor and say, the stupid parachute? No, why should he? He didn't put the parachute on for a better flight, he put it on to save him from the jump to come. If anything, the hot coffee incident causes him to cling tighter to the parachute and even look forward to the jump. Now, if you and I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, when tribulation strikes, if we put him on for the right motive, we won't get angry at God, we won't lose that joy or peace. Why should we? We didn't come to Jesus for a happy lifestyle. We came to flee from the wrath that's to come. And if anything, tribulation drives a true believer close to the Savior. And sadly, we have literally multitudes of professing Christians who lose their joy and peace when the flight gets bumpy. Why? They're the product of a man-centered gospel. They came lacking repentance without which you cannot be saved. I was in Australia some time ago. Australia is a small island off the coast of New Zealand. And I preached sin, Lord. <laughs> he said Australia is a small island off the coast of New Zealand. I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure you Aussies would say he had that backwards. Just, oh man, had to point that out. Righteousness, holiness, judgment, repentance, and hell. And I wasn't exactly crushed by the amount of people who want to give their hearts to Jesus. In fact, the ear went very tense. After the meeting, they said, There's a young guy down the back who wants to give his life to Christ. I went down the back and found a teenage lad who could not pray the sinner's prayer because he was weeping so profusely. Now, for me, it was really refreshing because for many years, I suffered from the disease of evangelical frustration. I so wanted sinners to respond to the gospel, I unwittingly preached a man-centered message. The essence of which was this. You'll never find true peace without Jesus Christ. You have a God-shaped vacuum in your heart only God can fill. I preach Christ crucified, I preach repentance, 
a sinner would respond at the altar and open an eye and say, oh no, this guy wants to give his life to Jesus. And there's an 80% chance he's going to backslide. And I am tired of creating backsliders. So I'd say to myself, I better make sure this guy really means it. He better be sincere. So I'd approach the poor guy in a Gestapo spirit. I'd walk up and say, and what do you want? He'd say, I'm here to become a Christian. I'd say, do you mean it? He'd say, yeah. I'd say, do you really mean it? He'd say, yeah. I'd say, okay, I'll pray with you, but you better mean it from your heart. He says, okay, okay. I say, you repeat this prayer sincerely after me and mean it from your heart sincerely and make sure you really mean it from your heart sincerely, from your heart. And I'd bow in prayer. I'd say, oh God, I'm a sinner. And I'd watch him. And he'd say, oh God, I'm a sinner. And I'd say, man, why isn't there a visible sign of contrition? There's no outward evidence the guy is inwardly sorry for his sins. And if I could have seen his motive, I would have seen he was one hundred percent sincere. He really did mean his decision with all his heart. He really sincerely wanted to give this Jesus thing a go to see if he could get a buzz out of it. He wasn't fleeing from the wrath that was to come because I hadn't told him there was wrath to come. There was a glaring omission from my message. He wasn't broken in contrition because the poor guy didn't know what sin was. Remember Paul said in Romans 7 verse 7, I had not known sin but by the law. How can a man repent if he doesn't know what sin is. Any so-called repentance would be merely what I call horizontal repentance. He's coming because he's lied to men, he's stolen from men. But when David sinned with Bathsheba and broke all ten of the Ten Commandments, when he coveted his neighbor's wife, lived a lie, stole his neighbor's wife, committed adultery, committed murder, dishonored his parents, and thus dishonored God, he didn't say, I've sinned against man. He said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. When Joseph was tempted sexually, he said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? The prodigal son said, I have sinned against heaven. Paul preached repentance towards God, and the Bible says godly sorrow works repentance. And when a man doesn't understand that his sin is primarily vertical, he'll not exercise biblical repentance. It'll be superficial, experimental, and horizontal. And when tribulation, temptation, persecution comes, he'll fall away for the word's sake. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 says, But we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. The Bible says God's law is good if it's used lawfully. We have a bread knife at home. That bread knife is a good knife. It's big, it's sharp, it slices bread really well. It's good if it's used correctly. But if I use it to plunge in my neighbor's back, it's not a good knife. The problem, though, isn't with the knife. It's with the hand holding the knife. And God's law is good if it's used lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. Well, what was it designed for? The following verse tells us. The law was not made for a righteous man, but for sinners. It even lists the sinners. Homosexuals. Fornicators. If you want to bring a homosexual to Christ, don't get into a debate with him over his lifestyle. Give him the Ten Commandments. The Bible says the law was made for homosexuals. Show him that he is damned despite his lifestyle. You know what the word conscience means? Yes. It means with knowledge. Right. So what you've done is that you've removed the batteries from the smoke detector so it won't cause an alarm. That's basically what you've done. Your conscience is like a smoke detector. Your smoke detector warns you when there's a fire so you can get out. Your conscience is like that. By destroying the power of your conscience, 
You've removed the batteries from that alarm that God has given you to tell you it's wrong. Right. You know what the Bible says? Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right. Now, you know how to tell if you're a sinner? Any idea? I, I, well, based on the Bible verse, I think that we all sin and fall short of God's glory. You know what the glory is? What's the standard that he's speaking of? A, a, a Christian standard. A, yeah, you know what it is? The, the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Now, right. let's go through them. Right. Okay. I'll keep an eye on your stand and I'll Thank tell you. you. Robbing I'm going to get in so much trouble. Okay, no, you're not. Go, you're doing fine. Thank you. Go ahead. Your name's Travis? Oh, I'm insulted. Do I look like a Travis to you? No, yeah, you're probably. It's Blake. Blake. That's Blake. Funny. Okay. Right. Why did I think of Travis? I have no idea. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, Blake. Let's take you through the commandments. Have you ever told okay. a lie? Yes. So what does that make you? A sinner. Now, more specifically, what does it make you? A liar. So, have you ever stolen something? No. I don't believe you because you just told me you're a liar. Oh, very good. Good one. So, have you ever stolen something even but small? No. Irrespective no. of the value. Ballpoint pen. Paperclip. No. Come on, be honest. My, my parents always gave me a, a, a nice allowance. I didn't have to steal anything. You didn't, no, never stole anything in never, your whole life? Ne never had to steal okay, anything. Okay, I'll let you have that. Thank you. Now, Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with lust? Uh, out here, of course. Okay. Yeah. We won't go into that further. Okay. Here's a fourth question. <laughs> have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes. I heard you use it before. Instead of using a four-letter filth word beginning with S to express disgust, you've taken the name of the God who gave you life and brought his holy name down to the level of that word to express disgust, which is called blasphemy. Did right. you know that? Yes. And the Bible says the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So bearing in mind you've, you've committed adultery in your heart, Jesus said, if you look with lust, you're a liar by your own admission, you're a blasphemer. If you stand before God on judgment day and he judges you by the Ten Commandments, do you think you'll be innocent or guilty? I, I, I thank you very much. I think that I would be guilty, but thank God we have such a merciful God, and there's always an opportunity to seek forgiveness. And I know that God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And Where I, did you hear that? That's not biblical. That's something that we say so we don't offend homosexuals, but the Bible doesn't <laughs> say that. Do you, know that, do you know what the Bible says? Tell me. God's wrath abides on you. Mm hmm that every time you sin, you're storing up wrath that will be revealed on the day of wrath. The Bible calls you and I, if we're not Christians, by nature, children of wrath. Mm. And if you died, the Bible makes it very clear you wouldn't go to heaven, you'd go to hell. If you want to bring a Jew to Christ, lay the weight of the law upon him. Let it prepare his heart for grace as happened to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Remember when Peter stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost, to whom was he speaking? Devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Men who therefore ate, drank, and slept God's law. So when he stood up to preach, he didn't preach wrath, judgment, law, holiness, righteousness. He merely told them the good news of the fine being paid for them. And the Bible says, they were pricked in their heart and cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? The law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. If you want to bring a, a Muslim to Christ, lay the weight of the law upon him. Let it prepare his heart for grace. Muslims accept Moses as a prophet. They accept Jesus as a prophet. We'll give them the law of Moses. Give them the spiritual nature of the law with the words of Jesus. Strip them of their self-righteousness. Show them they desperately need God's forgiveness. I heard of a Muslim reading a book, Hell's Best Kept Secret, and God soundly saved him purely through the reading of the book. Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect, converting a soul. Think of the woman caught in the act of adultery. They were going to stone her to death. She had violated the seventh commandment. She found herself between a rock and a hard place. Her only avenue of escape was to fling herself at the feet of the Son of God. And that is the function of God's law, to condemn. You say, but you can't condemn sinners. 
saints that are already condemned. He that believes not is condemned already. John 3 verse 18. All the law does is reveal to himself in his true light. It's like this, ladies. You have a wooden table in your living room. You dust it down. It's dust-free. It's clean. Then you draw back the curtains and let in the early morning sunlight. What do you see on the table? Dust. What do you see in the air? Dust. Did the light create the dust? No, the light merely exposed the dust. And when you and I take the time to draw back the curtains of the Holy of Holies and let the light of God's law shine upon us in his heart, all that happens is that he sees himself in truth. But that's a totally different kind of statement. Your statement is, I know that this is what happens. I'm saying, I know that nobody could possibly know what happens. Okay, that means you've got all knowledge. You are God. You know every human being on the face I of the earth and what they think. <laughs> you know what everybody thinks, and you know that there's no one on this earth who knows that the Bible is true. That is so arrogant. Okay. Can you see that? Maybe they believe it, but one day they will either know for sure or not. Right now, on this earth, they could not possibly know. Okay, let me tell you how I know. Would you like to know how I know? Yes, I would. This, this is so simple, it will probably offend you. A little kid was looking at a heater. His dad comes in and says, son, that heater's hot, don't touch it. Kid says, okay, that's hot. Dad goes out of the room. The kid says, I wonder if it really is hot. So he reaches out his little hands and grabs the heater bar. The second his flesh burns, he stops believing the heat is hot. He now knows it's hot. He's moved out of the realm of belief into the realm of experience. Okay? A heat expert comes in and says, kid, I know the heat is not hot. I'll prove it to you. The kid's not interested because he's experienced the power of its heat. Now, for 22 years as a non-Christian, I believed in God. I prayed at night. I believed Jesus was the Son of God, but I was not converted. 25th of April, 1972, 1.30 in the morning, I reached out and touched the heater bar of God's love and forgiveness and moved out of the realm of belief into the realm of experience. So I know and believe and am persuaded, as the Bible says. The Bible says you'll know that you pass from death to life. And today you can know your sins are washed away. You can know on Judgment Day, when you stand before God, you won't be condemned that God's granted you everlasting life if you'll obey the gospel. But you are so self-righteous. You won't even admit your sins. You'll never ask God for forgiveness because you don't feel guilt. Man, I do hope that changes, Rose. The commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, verse 13, By the commandment, sin became exceedingly sinful. In other words, it was the law that showed Paul's sin in its true light. It may be beneficial if I share with you how I witness on a one-to-one -one basis. I'm a very firm believer in biblical evangelism. I would never approach an impenitent sinner and say, Jesus loves you. Why? Because there's no biblical precedent for it whatsoever. I wouldn't even say to a complete stranger I wanted a witness to, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. You see, if you're in a deep sleep and I wanted to awaken you, I wouldn't use a flashlight in your eyes. I'd use a light dimmer. I'd be very gentle. And the Bible says the servant of the Lord must be gentle unto all men, first the natural, then the spiritual. Why? Because the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're foolishness to him because they're spiritually understood. So when I want to witness to someone, I believe we should follow the precedent of John chapter 4. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, he began in the natural. Water. Swung to the spiritual. Brought conviction using the law of God, specifically the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Then he revealed himself to her. So when I meet an impenitent sinner, this is how I make my approach. I start with something like, how are you doing? And he might say something like, I'm pretty good, how are you? I tell him I'm pretty and good. And I say to myself, here is a 
congenial sinner. Here is someone who was friendly enough to say, how are you doing? He's asked about the well-being of a complete stranger. So I feel at liberty to strike up a conversation with him. And often I talk with him about the natural. Maybe I'll get out a, a gospel tract, one of our titanic tracts, which always goes down well. It's a good icebreaker. And I give it to him. And then I reach in. Oh, man. Kiwi humor. <clears throat> he, he, he delivers it completely deadpan, too. I just had to point it out. <laughs> Love brother comfort here. My pocket, and I get out a penny with the Ten Commandments on it. Now, we have a machine that presses out these Ten Commandments. It's legal to do this in the U.S. The machine was very expensive, but I guess it's been worth every penny. So I give him the penny. He says, what is it? I say, it's a penny with the Ten Commandments on it. Now, all I'm doing is putting out a feeler to see if he's open to spiritual things. And most people say, oh, Ten Commandments on a penny, huh? So I feel at liberty to say, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? And most people say, oh, yeah, pretty much. I haven't killed anyone yet. I said, well, let's go through them. He says, okay. I said, have you ever told a lie? He said, yeah, one or two. I said, what does that make you? He says, a sinner. I said, no, more specifically, what does it make you? He said, well, man, I'm not a liar. I said, well, how many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Ten and a bell rings? Isn't it true you tell one lie that makes you a liar? He says, yeah, I guess you're right. I said, what are you? He says, I'm a liar. So have you ever stolen something? He says, no, no, no. I said, come on, you've just admitted to me you're a liar. Now, have you ever stolen something, even if it's small? He says, uh, yeah. I said, what does that make you? He says, a thief. I said, have you ever used God's name and blasphemy? He says, I haven't done that for years. I said, what, you blasphemer? Time doesn't forgive sin. I said, now, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever done that? He says, yeah, plenty of times. Say, by your own admission, then you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart, and you've got to face God on Judgment Day. And we've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments. And when we look at those other commandments, they surely leave us guilty. Number one, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That means God commands, our Creator commands, that He be the focal point of our affections. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. To a point where our love for mum and dad, brother and sister, and our own life seems like hatred compared to the love we have for the God who gave those loved ones to us. And the Bible says there's none that seek after God. No one can say, I've kept the first of the Ten Commandments. The second is, you should not make yourself a graven image. That is, you should not make a God to suit yourself. Where ones would say, my God isn't a God of wrath and judgment. My God's a God of love and mercy. He would never create hell. Well, if someone says that to you, agree with them. Say, you're right. Your God would never create hell because he couldn't. He doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination, the place of imagery. You've shaped a God to suit yourself. You've said, I'm the part of your the clay, and you've made a God to suit your sins. It's called idolatry, and it's the oldest sin in the book. And the Bible says, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've looked at the third. The fourth is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I went for 22 years as a non-Christian, knowing that God gave me life, and never once saying, God, what do you require of me? One day in seven, I blew that commandment. The fifth, honor your father and mother. Blew that in my teenage years, just an attitude. And the Bible says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. The sixth, you shall not kill. You'd think we'd be safe from that commandment, but Jesus said, whoever gets angry without cause is in danger of judgment. And the Bible says, whoever hates his brother 
is a murderer. We've looked at the 7th, 8th, 9th, and the 10th is, you shall not covet. And who of us can say, I've never desired something that belongs to somebody else? And the final nail in our coffin is, whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, the same is guilty of all. You don't have to break 10 laws to have the police after you, just break one, and you're in debt to justice, and the law will chase you. So I now say to my friend who looks at the commandments, I says, if God judges you by that standard on judgment day, do you think you'll be innocent or guilty? He says, man, I'll be guilty. So do you think you'll go to heaven or hell? And most people say, I think I'll go to heaven. Have you ever told a lie? Yes, I have. What does that make you? It makes me a liar. Have they you ever did. stolen something? <laughs> of course, I'm a kleptomaniac. So what does that make you? <laughs> a thief. Okay, now Jesus said if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? I'm pretty sure. You're pretty sure? I'm not, I can't guarantee it. You've I'm... never looked, you're not sure if you looked at a woman with lust? Yeah, I have. I'm sure so, I have. Okay, so. Yeah. Your turn's in a minute. Yeah, you have You've used God's name in vain. <laughs> yeah, of course. So you've used God's name as a curse Yeah, word. I gave him the finger and cussed him. Okay, cuss him so by time. your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer heart, a blasphemer, and you've got hatred in your heart, what the Bible says is murder. Now, if God judges you by that standard on the day of judgment, the Ten Commandments, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? I think I'm going to be guilty, but if he's... Hey, no buts. Would you go to heaven or hell? I think I'll still go to heaven. Unbelievable. I, I've broken all of the commandments. I'm as guilty as sin, and I'm still going to go to heaven. Without any concept of the gospel. Oh, boy. Why? Because if he's such loving and forgiving God as, as like, the Bible speaks, as, like, people have told me, I don't think he's going to send me to hell for stupid do you know what? You've got to watch your language because it's ladies' Stupid stuff. So just Sorry. apologize to the ladies. Lift the microphone up a little and speak out clearly. Do you know what you've just done now? You've broken the second of the Ten Commandments. You've created a God to suit yourself. You've made a God in your own image. Yeah, I believe in Diana. My you've goddess. made up your own God. I didn't make up See, my own God. See, your God she doesn't care about liars or thieves, adulterers, fornicators. Hold, hold up. Paganism's been around a lot longer than Christianity, so we didn't make up nothing. You guys are the ones who made up God. Christianity So was... if you die in your sins, you're going to be guilty, and the Bible says you'll end up in hell. I don't want that to happen to you. Your Bible says I'm going to hell. Absolutely. That's what I'm telling you. And God's word is true. You can rely on it. I say, why is that? You believe God is good and he'll overlook your sins? He says, yes, that's it. I say, well, try that in a court of law. You've committed rape and murder. You say, judge, I know I'm guilty. I know you're going to pass sentence, but I'd like to say something. I think you're a good man, and therefore you'll just let me go. The judge would probably say, you're right about one thing, I am a good man, and because of my goodness, I'm going to see that you're punished. And the very thing that sinners are hoping will save them on the day of judgment, the goodness of God, will be the very thing that will condemn them. Because if God is good, he must by nature punish murderers, rapists, thieves, liars, fornicators, blasphemers, and those who have lived contrary to the inner light, the conscience that God has given to every man. You say you're a good person, you said you're a nice person. That's correct. Now, I'm going to judge by God's standard whether that's true, okay? Okay. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah. Of course. Have you? What does that make you? Yes, yeah, I've told a lie. Yeah, I've broken the commandments. Let me just take this down so you can see what I'm saying here. But does that make me a bad person? No. Look, let me just show you, because this is real important. Jed. Okay, you've told a lie. Jed, what does it make you? Makes me a person. Okay, you've chosen human... Or what do you say, normal? See, we're all very predictable. Well, you tell normal. one lie, you know what makes you? I'll give you a clue. Are you ready? It's not a sinner. This is specifically the right term. Whatever. So you've told a lie. What are you? 
Come on, I'm call a... it what it is. Have some courage. You convictions. I'm a liar. Have so, you ever stolen something? Of course. So what does that make you? A stealer. A thief. A thief. A stealer. Now, Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Many, many, many times. Okay, by your own admission, kid, you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart, and you're self-righteous because you've said, I'm a good person, I'm a nice person, when the truth is you're a liar, a thief, and an adulterate heart. If God judges you by that standard, the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? Um, I'd be guilty, Will but... you go to heaven or hell, according to God's standards? Well, uh, God's standards? Who's to say what God's standards Here it is. This are. is God's standards. All liars are their part in the lake of fire. Man, you're in big trouble, Jed. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, man, I could never walk up to a complete stranger and say, excuse me, you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart. Neither could I. Neither would I. Just using biblical principles, I've drawn a confession of sin from him. And listen carefully, using that approach with hundreds, perhaps thousands of people on a one-to-one -one basis, I have never, as far as I can remember, seen anyone offended by that approach. Why? Well, what's he going to say? I thought theft was the right thing to do. I thought adultery was the right thing to do. No, the Bible says in Romans 2 verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, the conscience bearing witness. Con is with, science is knowledge. Conscience, with knowledge. When we lie, steal, lust, fornicate, blaspheme, we do it with knowledge that it's wrong. And on the day of judgment, we'll be without excuse. So now with this knowledge this man has, he can now see that he is an enemy of God in his mind through wicked works. That he is, as the Bible says, by nature a child of wrath. That the wrath of God abides upon him, and that every time he sins, he's storing up wrath that will be revealed in the day of wrath. He can see that he's weighed in the balance of eternal justice and found wanting. He can understand that God is angry to sin, that he's condemned. But now he can understand why Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. It's as simple as this. We broke God's law and Jesus paid our fine. And all who repent and trust in Him receive remission of sins. God says, case dismissed through lack of evidence. All your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. So someone with this understanding can now therefore exercise repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his death and his resurrection, he can receive the gift of everlasting life. He puts his hand to the plow, and now he doesn't look back, because he's fit for the kingdom. John Wesley, in writing to a young evangelist, said, Preach 90% law, 10% grace. You say, 90% law, 10% grace? Couldn't it be 50-50? Well, think of it like this. I'm a doctor, you're a patient. You have a terminal disease. I have a cure. Now, how am I going to handle telling you? probably like this. I'd say, come in, sit down. I've got some very serious news for you. You have a terminal disease. I see sweat come to your brow. I think to myself, good, he's seeing the seriousness of the situation. And then I begin bringing out medical books, x-rays, and I, over 10 minutes, convince you this poison is seeping through your system. For 10 whole minutes, I speak of nothing but this terrible disease and its horrific consequence. 10 minutes. How long, therefore, do you think I'm going to have to talk about the cure? Not long at all. I say, oh, by the way, there is a cure. You say, give it to me. What's happened is this disease and its terrible consequence, knowledge of this terrible disease and its consequence, has made you desire the cure. And that's the function of God's law. As we look at God's law, 
We see the terrible disease, we see our danger, it makes us hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, an unregenerate person has as much desire for the word righteousness as a four-year-old boy has for the word bath. There's no desire at all. They don't desire righteousness. The Bible says they drink iniquity like water. They love the darkness, they hate the light. I had no desire for righteousness before I was a Christian, until I was confronted with God's law and its demands. God took my rotten, dirty heart that loved to lust, that preferred lying to stealing, I was, and lying to, to telling the truth. I was no different than any other person. I just hit it very well. He took me and he transformed me. He gave me new desires for what was right rather than what's wrong. He opened up the Bible to me. It was like a light coming in God's Word. You need light. That's what you need. If you're, you're blind in your sins, you're dead in your sins, I can't convince you you've got to do it yourself. It's as simple as that. And you don't want to because you love your sins. You're a slave to pornography. You love your premarital sex. You just can't help it. You're a slave. You're like a moth to the flame. God says, if you call out for me, I'll save you from your sins. I'll save you from hell. I'll save you from judgment day. I'll save yourself. I had absolutely no desire for righteousness. Absolutely none until I was confronted with God's law and its holy demands. When I suddenly realized that God requires truth in the inward parts, that he saw the thought light, that he sees the darkness as pure light, that I'd given account of every idle word I'd spoken on the day of judgment, then I began to say, what should I do to be made right? I began to hunger and thirst for righteousness because the law did its part in preparing my heart for grace. Charles Spurgeon said they'll never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. You'll never convince a man to take a cure unless you first convince him of his disease. In Acts 28, the Apostle Paul said he testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. What are we doing when we testify the kingdom of God? We're seeking to persuade people concerning Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. How are we going to convince an unbelieving world that He is the only way they can be forgiven? Well, we do it like Paul did, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. Well, how do we persuade someone concerning Jesus out of the prophets? Well, we point to the prophecies of Matthew 24, Luke 21, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We show sinners that the Bible is axiomatic, it's self-provable. You can substantiate that this is a supernatural book simply by looking at the prophecies of Scripture. You can see there's said to be an earthquake increase, famines, diseases, nation would rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, violence would increase, homosexual increase, there would increase in the occult interest, increase in vegetarianism. Scoffers would say, where's the promise of his coming? All things have been the same. But Jesus said, watch for one sign. When Jerusalem is obtained by the Jews, then the end of that time will come soon. And the Jews had no homeland for 2,000 years. In 1967, they obtained Jerusalem, culminating all the words of the prophets. So when a man looks at the prophecies, when he looks at the prophets, he begins to have faith in the Word of God. He begins to say, this is a supernatural book. So when we preach out of the prophets, we speak to a man's intellect and create faith in the Word of God. A man says, whoa, that's in the Bible? He begins to believe the Scriptures. But when we preach out of the law of Moses, we don't speak to his intellect. We speak to his conscience and bring the knowledge of sin. And the Bible Again, you know, i got to give this, i got to give Ray Comfort complete props. I mean, this is... You know, some of the conclusions he draws theologically, I would say, okay, I have a slightly different take on it. 
But the thing is, is that uh, we're in the same ballpark. And, you know, just in watching, this is a video, just in watching how he so boldly and bravely will stand up to a sinner one-on-one in front of, literally, when you look at it, I mean, there's the, he, there are small crowds of people, anywhere from 50 to 100, that gather around to hear him do the street preaching. And uh, he's calling people sinners and just as right in their face conf- confronting them with their sin. I mean, <sighs> You know, and he doesn't leave him there. He gives him Christ and him crucified and creates the cult. And through his preaching, the context of the good news begins to take shape in a way that makes sense. This is good stuff. The Bible says Paul testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. And many Christians do preach out of the prophets. They do use prophecy to convince a man. But if we convince a man merely intellectually, that he needs to come to Christ. And there's no knowledge of sin, and he makes a decision. He's a false convert, more than likely, because the Bible says, if there's no repentance, she'll perish. If there's no knowledge of sin, there'll be no genuine repentance. God said, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge of the law, Hosea 4, 6. Paul said, without the law, he had not known what sin was. So if we want to see genuine converts, those who are genuinely repentant, we must preach out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. Because Jesus warned that many would come to him on that day and say, Lord, Lord. And he'd say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Visual interlude here, showing a typewriter. How many of the Ten Commandments can you name? Thou shalt not kill. Uh, thou shalt not commit fornication. Fornification. Yeah, we don't want any of that fornificating going on. Fornification. Uh, what else? Love thy neighbor. That's three. Uh, how many more you want? Um, <laughs> thou shalt honor mother and father. That's four. Uh, thou shalt not get on TV <laughs> and, and get asked these questions. Can you name any of the Ten Commandments? Um, not to ki- thou shalt not kill. I know stealing's one of them, right? And then um, don't don't covet your neighbor's stuff like your like their wife and stuff like that let's see ten commandments i think there's ten of them okay i don't know do you know any of the ten commandments? this is like the jaywalking uh, segment on the jay leno show Can you name the Ten Commandments? No. And, um... Uh, 
Give me one. More visual interlude here. Typewriter typing again. How many beers can you name? Yikes. That's ten. Ten beers. Budweiser, Corona, Tres X, Amstel Light, some Poly Girl. One more. I'm gonna look like a alcoholic. I have no idea what he said. Current Amstel Light, Coors, Coors Light, Miller, Miller Light, Bud, Bud Light, Corona, Heineken, um, Molson. Okay, there I go. Okay, that's good. Your name's in. Okay. <clears throat> the, uh, there's text here that says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. So, I leave the ball in your court. Consider this teaching. Think about it. Be as the Bereans who search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Study the book of Romans and see if what I'm saying is true. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I had not known sin, but by the law. The law stops every mouth and leaves the whole world guilty before God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Find yourself a sinner and experiment on him. May God bless you and keep you. If you're interested in more... Well, there you have it. There's the audio of uh, the video, Hell's Best Kept Secret. And you know what I find interesting about the video? First of all, again, props to uh, Ray Comfort for proper distinction of law and gospel and using the law to do what the law is supposed to do, convict us of our sin and show us our need for a Savior. This needs to be done not only in street preaching, but it also needs to be done in pulpit preaching needs to happen every single Sunday. But you can't stop with just the law, too. You also need to hear the gospel. Well, what I find interesting about this particular um, uh, video presentation is that, um, that this would even be controversial uh, or even need to be taught. But the reality is, is that uh, in our current uh, postmodern age, uh, something terrible has happened to the church, and it's the uh, the gospel of uh, of self improvement, the gospel of uh, 
of a kinder, a kinder and gentler gospel that, you know, that you can have a better experience here on the planet. It's not the gospel. The whole seeker-driven movement is, and the whole purpose-driven movement is built off of that false gospel that leaves men in their sins and doesn't even remotely give them any reason for wanting to hear the good news and understand the good news of Christ crucified for our sins. A message that you and I, because we are sinners, we need to hear Sunday after Sunday and even day after day. This is a message you need to preach to yourself when you are reading God's word daily in your daily devotions. You need to hear the gospel, the good news that Christ died for your sins. And the context for that is the law itself, the Mosaic law and all of its ferocity and all of its terrifying glory. And that's what um, gives the good news of Christ's death on the cross its context and understanding. All right, well, we are rapidly approaching the uh, end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means in order for us to continue bringing such valuable resources like these sermon reviews or these lecture reviews that we do here at Fighting for the Faith, uh, we need your financial support to pay our bills so that we can continue producing this important program. You can uh, support us and partner with us a couple of ways. You can, one, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow Donate buttons. Yeah, that's right. They're right there on the homepage. Or if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can uh, make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, that's it. That's uh, another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, uh, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can uh, uh, be a friend of mine on Facebook. Look me up. My name is Chris Roseboro or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. <laughs>